This is episode number 271 with the legend of visual journalism, Alberto Cairo. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content, and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. And you can get access to all this today just by becoming a Super Data Science member. There is no strings attached. You just need to go to superdatascience.com and sign up there, cancel at any time. In addition, with your membership, you get access to any new courses that we release, plus all the bonuses associated with them. And of course, there are many additional features that are in place or are being put in place as we speak, such as the Slack channel for members where you can already today connect with other data scientists all over the world or in your location and discuss different topics such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, visualization, and more, or just hang out in the pizza room and have random chats with fellow data scientists. Also, another feature of the Super Data Science platform is the office hours, where every week we invite valuable guests in the space of data science and interrogate them about their techniques, about their methodologies in the space of data science. And you actually get a presentation from the guest and you get an opportunity to ask Q&A at the end. And in some of our office hours, we just present some of the most valuable techniques that our hosts think are going to be valuable to you. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super, super pumped to have you back here on the show today because the guest for today, I've been hunting this man down for months. We've been inviting Alberto or trying to get a spot in Alberto's super busy schedule for months now. And finally, it's happened. I just got off the phone with nobody else but Alberto Cairo. And we had an amazing, amazing chat about data visualization. So if you're not familiar with who Alberto is, Alberto is a journalist. He's a speaker and author. He's also the night chair in visual journalism at University of Miami. So the night chair means that he's endowed by the Knight Foundation, uh, which recognizes and puts certain journalists into leading positions as tenure professors in academia. There's only a handful of night uh, chairs in the US, maybe a couple of dozen and Alberto Cairo is one of them. So all of these credentials should speak for themselves as to what kind of caliber of a journalist and data visualization expert Alberto is. He's presented at numerous uh, conferences and he's actually published two books already. Uh, if uh, you might be actually familiar with them, the first one's called The Functional Art, An Introduction to Information Graphics and Visualization, came out in 2012. And the second one is The Truthful Arts, Data Charts and Maps for Communication, came out in 2016. And what's exciting is that Alberto's third book is coming out. It's called How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information. It's coming out in October this year, October 2019. And you can actually already pick it up on pre-order. So we talked about Alberto's book and you get some very useful insights from this book for your visualization practices and, and also for understanding visualizations better. Plus, we talked about plenty of other things on this podcast. Here's a couple of teasers of what you're about to experience. Why do people misinterpret visualizations? The Simpsons paradox, the ecological fallacy, four kinds of literacy, being conscious about visualizations, 
exploratory data analysis versus communicating results, how to design effective visualizations, and ethics in data visualization. Those are just a few topics that we touched on. So as you can imagine, it's going to be a value-packed podcast. So without further ado, I bring to you Alberto Cairo, the legend of data visualization. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today, I'm super excited because I've got a legendary guest on the show, Alberto Cairo, calling in from Miami. Alberto, how are you going today? Hey, doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well and super pumped uh, to be talking to you. I watched your presentation at Microsoft yesterday as, as we were chatting just before the podcast. And my God, like you have some very interesting approaches to visualization. So I'm very excited to dig into these today. Likewise, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, no, pleasure is mine. And um, yeah, so how how is Miami these this time of the year? I saw in your Twitter feed that you're spending, you're finally taking some time away from all the presentations and conferences and going to spend some time with family. How, like, are you looking forward to that? How's that going to be? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so super looking forward to that. So uh, one thing that I usually joke about Miami is that I, I am originally from Spain, from mm. northwestern Spain, a region called Galicia. And Galicia is uh, very rainy and dark and windy and cold. And Miami can be rainy sometimes, particularly during during the summer, because clouds build up during the day and you get a downpour at the end of the day. But most of the time is warm and sunny. So I, I get used to this weather mm. very quickly and I love it here. And I'm looking forward to those three months of staying at home, no travel, but I will have tons of work. I mean, I'm, I'm not planning to basically rest. I will be working on tons of stuff. It's only that I can do it in my backyard next to the swimming pool, which is a luxury that I that I have. Yeah, no, that's that's really exciting. But it doesn't it doesn't get too hot in my I've only been in Miami like uh, briefly and then I went to Florida Keys. So I was wondering, like, it doesn't get too hot because in Spain, for instance, in summer, it, like last year, I think it was like 37 degrees or Celsius or something like that. Oh, yeah. And if you go to the south of Spain, you can get to 40 degrees Celsius wow. or even more 40, 42. Miami doesn't get that that warm. Um, however, what it happens is that it had you have like crazy humidity, mm. so you need to hydrate all day, basically. But if you do that, you're fine. I mean, you, if you always carry water with you. Um, which is advisable, mm -hmm. uh, then you are fine. Okay. But you need to like this kind. You need to like this kind of weather. I mean, yeah. if you're a, a cold weather person, you will suffer mightily, mm -hmm. mightily here. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm I am, I'm a warm weather person, so I really enjoy Miami. Yeah, yeah, understood. And uh, yeah, indeed, it's it's really humid. Like you feel as soon as you get out the plane, you start sweating like crazy. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which part of Miami? I live in a in a neighborhood called Kendall, which is in southwestern Miami. Mm -hmm. I am not close to the coast, uh, to Miami Beach, or I'm I'm closer to the Everglades, which is the uh, the, the large uh, natural park, the swamp mm -hmm. uh, over here. So I usually joke that I'm closer to the alligators than yeah. I am to the, <laughs> to the dolphins yeah. or the sharks. Yeah, <laughs> or to the sharks. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Well, very cool. Very excited for your time in um, in Miami for the next uh, few months to. To have a rest and um, a, a well-deserved rest because as we were chatting before the podcast, you've got your third book coming out in October. So once that happens, <laughs> you're going to be on the move, going to conferences pretty much every day. That's, uh, you know, like, as you said, you can, you can see it as a problem or as a, a huge opportunity. Yeah, how, how it's are a you problem. Feeling? Yeah, it's a problem or an opportunity. So yeah, some the the book that comes out in October, um, it's it's actually my first book for the general public. So it's a the title is How Charts Lie, although uh, perhaps a more appropriate title would be How How We Lie to Ourselves with mm. Charts. And and the way that it is written, it's very informal, very non technical. It's sort of an introduction to how to become a better reader mm -hmm. of charts. Not a better designer, but a better reader, because it's for the general public. It's not for designers. So it's like how to correctly interpret all the line charts and bar graphs and data maps that we see every day in social media and in news media. How to extract the right meaning from them. So I don't know. I, perhaps it will. I don't know. It will sell well. It will attract 
uh, lots of attention. Who knows? And yeah, we'll, I, I already have several speaking engagements lined up for the fall in relationship to it, um, just to help with the promotional efforts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's, uh, that's very exciting. And totally agree that a book for the general public, well, especially from somebody of uh, your level in the space of visualization, it's it's necessary because people like there's people who want to hear from you, but maybe uh, they're not technical. They don't have the technical background to understand certain concepts or to keep up mm-hmm. with certain concepts. So a book for the general public is a, I think, is a great idea. And so, yeah. um, so what what are some of the main things that you cover off in this book? What are some of the main themes? Yeah. So what what I did in the new book was to basically ask myself if if I had not learned anything myself about data visualization by studying or practicing it, what are the most elementary skills or pieces of knowledge that I need to have in order to be a critical, not designer, but a critical reader? of these kinds of products in news media, right? So um, obviously I cover things such as the, you know, the main principles of data visualization that you can read about in any in any more technical books, like the ones that I wrote in the past, such as the truthful art, for example, right? So principles such as, you know, visual encoding. What is visual encoding, right? Visual encoding basically is getting your data and then mapping your data onto objects and then changing some properties of those objects in proportion to the data that you're trying to represent. It could be the length of the object or the height of the object or the color of the object and so on and so forth. Those properties, we call them encodings, right? Mm -hmm. So in the past, I I taught these kinds of skills to people who wanted to work in data visualization. What I do in the new book is to try to explain these very elementary principles to people who are not going to be graphic designers or visualization designers or data scientists, but who are going to be consumers of those kinds of products. So they need to be prepared to read them correctly. And in order to read them correctly, you need to understand data visualization at the symbolical level. So understanding the principle of mapping data onto objects at the grammatical level, meaning that you need to learn about encodings. And and in the third level, which is the core of the book, actually, it's the semantics level. So once you are able to understand the mechanics of of a graphic, how to read it, right, then you need to be able to interpret it Right. So is that the semantics level? What is the information that the graphic is carrying? How to extract the right um, a, the right insights or, or the right inferences from the chart that you are seeing? I think that these skills are of great value for for anybody. Right. And the problem is that the literature about data visualization and this includes my own previous books, uh, they are aimed too much at people who want to specialize in the field. So we already share some knowledge, right? We have basically the same similar levels of knowledge, right? And the challenge is that um, basically what is happening is that there is an increase in the sophistication that visualization designers have, um, but there is not the same increase in sophistication in the readers mm. who consume these kinds of data visualizations, right? So there's a growing gap between, let's say, the communities made of uh, visualization designers, data scientists, statisticians, etc. We are developing new methods every day. We are making all these fields advance very quickly and improve very quickly and creating new tools and so on and so forth. But the general public is falling behind, right? So my interest in the past few years have be, have, has been, how can we help the general public bring themselves up to speed with all these new techniques? Obviously, I cannot write about data science. I'm not statistician, I'm not a data scientist, but I'm a visualization designer. So I asked myself, what can I do to help, you know, my dad, for example, who is a medical doctor, not trained in statistics, not trained in data visualization. What can I help to help? What can I do to help my dad bring himself up to speed with data visualization? And I wrote the book that way. If I had to explain to a non-technical person what data visualization is about, why it is so important, how, why it can be so powerful, but at the same time, how dangerous it can be as well, if you don't use it correctly, how would I write that book? And that's sort of the frame of mind that I put myself into to write this new book. Mm -hmm. I totally understand. And uh, I like how you say in your talks that uh, good data visualizations have two really powerful qualities, that they're persuasive and they're memorable, right? So Mm -hmm. that you, by see, if you see a good visualization, not only understand what, uh, hopefully, you know, understand properly or is communicated properly, what's 
the underlying insights are, but also you're able to memorize it because it's an image and you can see it in your head and you can maybe describe those insights mm -hmm. later to somebody else. And I think perhaps that's, those are the two reasons why more and more um, publications such as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times and so on, they're moving to visualizations. Like the amount of infographics and uh, mm -hmm. visual representations of information, like whether it's about elections or about... Um, uh, population statistics or about crime rates and things like that the amount of infographics out there is is crazy and now they're getting interactive and uh, they're getting more and more exciting and interesting on on these publications so mm -hmm. that's that's and there, is, and there is a there is a reason there is a reason for mm. these things which is that um if you ask people who work in in data data journalism departments or graphics departments in news publications such as the ones that you mentioned, Wall Street Journal or 538 or the New York Times or ProPublica or many others, the Financial Times, all these publications are considered the gold standard in the in using data visualization in the news. They will all tell you the same thing, which is that if a data visualization is is well designed. And it, and it covers a topic that the public is interested in, obviously, it will become extremely, extremely, extremely popular. I mean, some of the most popular pieces of content published in the past decade by some of these media publications have been data visualization. The, the most popular, and this is a sort of a factoid that I usually um, uh, talk about in, in some of the talks in relationship to the new book, How Chats Lie. Uh, one of the things I say is that the most popular piece of content ever published by the New York Times.com, the New York Times, the most important, most serious newspaper in the United States and one of the most important newspapers in the world, the most popular piece of content ever published by the New York Times online is a data visualization. Oh, wow. It's a data visualization that is commonly called yeah, it's, it's commonly called the, the dialect map. Mm. Uh, you can Google it up, the dialect map, New York Times. The actual title is How You, Y'all, and Use Guide Talks or something. I don't remember exactly what the title is, mm -hmm. but everybody knows it as the dialect map. And basically, so, so it's a tool that asks you several questions. So how do you pronounce this word in English? Or how do you refer to this particular phenomenon or this particular animal in English? What word do you use for that? And based on your responses to the questions that are posed to you, basically what you start seeing is a bunch of maps that predict uh, where you probably live or, or where you are from, right? Based United on the States. Right. In the United States, although recently they created a version for the United Kingdom. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, that 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 project is, the the, re, the reasons why the, this project were was so, is so popular or varied, but it has to do with how interesting the topic is, but also because it's a visually, it's a visual tool, right? And it's so well designed and so well done. And it's the most popular piece of content ever mm. published by NewYorkTimes.com. So why, why would you say people like visualization so much? Well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it appeals to us, visualization, because first of all, it's visual and we are visual creatures. We, we, we prefer to see things rather than to read things. Uh, we, are, we basically evolved to be visual creatures. I mean, a huge part of our brain is devoted to processing visual information. And then another virtue of data visualization is that, as you mentioned before, I mean, it's, it's persuasive and it's memorable when it is very well designed. The way that I usually put this in talks and, and in the new book is that if a data visualization was well designed and it reveals certain insights coming from the data, once you see those insights, you cannot unsee them. Mm. And Basically, they stick to your brain. It's like they are very memorable. So that's that's another reason. Visualization is much more memorable if it is well designed, right? Sometimes than than text alone, right? By the way, visualization is not just visualizing things. Visualization is very often the combination of visuals with words mm -hmm. that that supplement those visuals, right? The best data visualizations are usually combinations of, of visual objects with words that reinforce each other. We call this the annotation layer mm -hmm. in the world of data, of data visualization. Uh, they are also beautiful objects, right? And, and we human beings like beauty, like beautiful, like to see beautiful objects and enjoy, right? Visual, good visualizations are highly enjoyable. Mm. So they, they are, uh, these are, this may be a bunch of reasons. Uh, this yeah. may be just some of them, a few of them. So they, they uh, and they trigger an emotion, right? Like that, um, 
example yeah, that yeah, you give with absolutely. the hockey stick, they right? Can be, they can be joyful, right? They, they can, as very commonly, we say commonly these days, they, they may spark joy, right? Yeah. <laughs> they or, may, yeah. or they can terrify, <laughs> right? Like you they have that. They can terrify you. I mean, they can terrify you. They can, they can surprise you. They can, I don't know. They can be, yeah, they can be emotional. The, the same way that a good text can be, right? Mm -hmm. uh, texts can also... Uh, elicit emotion sometimes, but there is something more visceral, something more direct in the use of visual objects mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah, and it's um, and therefore, like when because a visual creates this imprint and creates, like as you said, if you see it, you cannot unsee it. It's it's a it's a bit dangerous or sometimes sad when visuals are either, as you put it, like either misused or misinterpreted and people mm -hmm. see the wrong thing or are shown the wrong thing and therefore mm -hmm. now they cannot unsee the wrong thing and that yeah. creates a whole yeah it's so persuasive so powerful that they that it can overpower you yeah right it, it, they can basically become uh, sort of memes that control your thoughts so that and that's a whole another reason why i wrote this new book right to basically warn people about how careful we need to be uh, when reading mm. visualizations, right? And there are many examples of that. One one example that I have in the book is, um, uh, which I use, by the way, to explain one of the core principles of reading data visualization, which is that when you see a data visualization, one of the key things that you need to do is to come up with the right description of what you are seeing, right? Mm -hmm. So I do, I do this scatter plot, which I borrow from a friend of mine, a Heather Cross, who is a statistician. <clears throat> so it's a, it's a scatter plot that shows the positive association there's a positive correlation between cigarette consumption and life expectancy country mm. by country when you take a look at the country level data the association between cigarette consumption per capita and life expectancy is positive right wow. so you imagine the scatter plot and uh, the way that i that you would describe that we commonly describe that kind of chart and i know these because i have done this myself is to say if you see the x-axis cigarette consumption per capita and the y-axis the vertical axis life expectancy per capita and you see that one of them is positively correlated with the other the way that we usually describe that kind of chart is the more cigarettes we consume, the longer we live, right? <laughs> but that is not the right description. If you describe the chart like that, you are biasing people's perception of that chart. And you are biasing your own perception perception of that chart. Because what you're not maybe considering is that you're looking at the data aggregated at the national level. And that can be very dangerous because it could be an example of a Simpsons paradox, right? The phenomenon that data that gets aggregated at a certain level Level, may display patterns that may disappear or reverse completely once you disaggregate the data at, at lower levels of aggregation. This is, it's a perfect example to explain this phenomenon. I do this in the book because once you disaggregate the data at the, at the regional level, at the local level, and you go down to the individual level, you will see that the relationship that was positive before, more cigarettes, more life expectancy, reverses completely. More mm. cigarettes, less life expectancy. Oh, okay. So, so why the reversal? Mm -hmm. The reversal is, is related to wealth, right? Mm -hmm. The wealthier a country is, the more cigarettes people in that country can consume. So the, the, the wealthier a country is, the more cigarettes per capita you have. But at the same time, the wealthier a country is, the higher the life expectancy is as well, because people can pay for better health care. Mm -hmm. Right. So basically what you're seeing there is a spurious correlation between the but it's not really spurious. The correlation really exists, but it only exists at the national level, not at the individual level, mm -hmm. which is the level that you are interested in. If you want to know, for example, whether smoking cigarettes is good for you, you should not look at data at the national level. Because the correlation that you see at the national level may not reproduce at the individual level. Mm. Gotcha. So at the national level, every uh, point on the chart is a country at the individual exactly. level. Exactly. At the individual level. So the x-axis is uh, cigarette consumption. The y-axis will be life expectancy. And you see a positive association. The more cigarette, the bigger the cigarette consumption is, the further to the right a point is, the farther up the point tends to be as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very interesting. Or... Um, or that other, there was another example in one of your talks, I had it in my mind just now, um, 
that uh, had the same thing that if you, uh, it depends on how you interpret it, right? Like how you, oh, the chocolate and Nobel Prize winners, that yeah, example. Yeah, the, cho the chocolate and Can you Nobel tell us about that one? I love that example. Yeah, that's that's a that's an example that I don't use in How Chats Lie. I use it in the previous book, in The Truthful Art. So basically, it's like if you take a look at a scatter plot, it's a very similar. Imagine a scatter plot at the national level. Each dot is a country. And then you plot on the x-axis, you plot a chocolate consumption per capita. So the further to the right a country is, the more chocolate per capita that country consumes. And then the further up on the y, on the y scale, on the vertical axis, the larger the number of Nobel Prizes per 10 million people you have. And there is a very strong positive association, is correlation, is linear, it's a linear association between chocolate consumption per capita and Nobel Prizes per capita, right? or per 10 million people, right? The more chocolate consumption, the bigger the chocolate consumption, the bigger, the larger the number of Nobel Prizes. Mm -hmm. But obviously you cannot infer that there's a relationship between those two things. That's the first thing, right? The classic correlation is not causation, right? But we need to go beyond that, right? Correlation is not causation. It's a mantra that we have been repeating for 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 decades now. And it's, it's basic knowledge. It's elementary knowledge. And we need to keep repeating it because it's very easy to infer causation based just on mere correlation. But we need to go beyond that. And that's what I need to, I try to do in the new book, explaining concepts again, such as a Simpsons paradox or the ecological fallacy, right? The ecological fallacy being inferring something about yourself, for example, based on data that is aggregated at the national level or the regional level, right? You cannot infer something about yourself, whether cigarette consumption is good for you, right, individually, based on data that you're seeing at the national level, right? Mm. Because there may be confounding variables that you're not taking into consideration, for example, wealth mm. in this particular case. And I, I, am, I am emphasizing all these examples so much in, in our conversation today and also in the new book, because this is a kind of mistake that I have made myself mm -hmm. because I was careless about data, right? Describing the cigarette consumption chart, a life expectancy chart as the more we smoke, the longer we live. Well, that's not true. The way to describe a scatter plot showing the positive as a correlation between cigarette consumption and life expectancy would be to say that there is a positive association between cigarette consumption and life expectancy, but that doesn't mean that one of the variables causes the other. And this relationship may disappear once we start disaggregating the data. So we need to warn people about these kinds of phenomena when we present it to them. And at the same time, a reader of charts need to be prepared not to just look at the graphic and move away, but to read the graphic carefully and think about the chart. Because if you don't pay attention to the chart, right, you will probably be misled by the chart. You will strike the wrong inferences from it. Charts, mm -hmm. maps, graphs, etc., they are not meant to be seen. They are meant to be read mm -hmm. like a piece of text. You need to read them and think about them carefully, right? Otherwise, you will probably be misled by them. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And I really like what you say about um, why people misinterpret charts and how we can, like, what is missing in that puzzle. And when you talk about the four kinds of literacy, so the normal literacy is in reading, the yeah. one we used to. Reading or writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. articulacy, numeracy, numeracy and mm -hmm. graphicacy. Do you mind, like, telling us a bit about those? And sure. Wh sure, sure. What are the, the last two? Yeah, so... Um, uh, so th these are this is not these are not terms that I have invented. They have been around for many many years. I learn about all these by in books such as uh, In Numeracy, which is a very famous book about how to interpret numbers correctly, and also a book called uh, Mapping It Out by a cartographer called Mark Monnier. And, and and in Mapping It Out, Monnier says that, and I agree with that, that that in order to consider ourselves educated citizens nowadays, we need to be able to do more than just merely read and write. That's that's basic literacy, right? Mm -hmm. We need that, obviously. We cannot, uh, you know, we cannot abandon that, obviously. But we also need uh, articulacy, which is the ability to express ourselves correctly through spoken words. And on top of that, we need numeracy. And numeracy is basically the 
elementary skill, being able to think critically about numbers. I, I usually equate it, compare it to some sort of sixth sense in the back of your brain mm. that starts ringing when you see a number in news media that doesn't sound right. Like a, a right? BS meter, a bullshit meter. Yes, yeah, but uh, but it's not a conscious thing. It's sort of, mm. sort of a sort of a, like a sixth sense that you see a number in the media and say, there is something dubious about this number. There's something wrong about it. I don't know what it is but it doesn't sound right. That's numeracy at work. And numeracy is a skill that can be developed. You can be educated in that, right? Um, you don't need to become a statistician or a data science scientist to have elementary numeracy, right? Obviously, if you want to become really, really numerate, it's better if you formally study statistics and data science. But I, I, I have come to believe that any regular citizen like myself, I'm not a statistician, I'm a journalist and a graphic designer. I have come to believe that any citizen can educate themselves, herself or himself, in basic numeracy. And then on top of that, you have graphicacy, which is graphical literacy, right? The ability to interpret, to read and interpret correctly maps and charts and graphs and any sort of visual that represents numbers, right? How to extract the right meaning from them. And it all begins with attention. You need to basically put yourself in the frame of mind that says that what you're seeing is not an illustration is a visual argument. So in order to understand that visual argument, you need to pay attention to it, right? And then you need to apply some elementary principles of chart reading that I explain in the book and in talks, etc., such as, you know, uh, don't read too much into a chart. Um, a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else, right? Because we tend to project what we want to believe onto the charts that we see every day in news media, and that's very, very dangerous, right? Uh, double check the sources. Where did the data come from, right? Um, you need to ask yourself whether uh, the numbers that are displayed on the chart are measuring what they say that they are measuring. This is another critical thing to do sometimes, right? So is it measuring the right thing? And what methods were used to measure this particular phenomenon, right? These kinds of things don't take longer than five or 10 minutes. And it can take you a long way to avoid, you know, most of the cases in which you can be misled by a chart that you see in news media. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I like, I really liked, uh, <laughs> I liked a lot your principles of graphical literacy so definitely it's not something that is taught at school so if you don't mind let's let's go over them and uh i think that'll get a lot of value so maybe starting with uh, with the first like the foundational one that you call as like number zero is your data measuring yeah, what you think you're measuring, measuring what you think that's a measuring. very important yes. question right like have you seen examples of when charts are oh, created yeah, with I the wrong data yeah, I have seen I have seen examples of, of charts measuring the wrong thing and saying that they are measuring the right thing. Yeah, but I don't know. But uh, for example, <clears throat> I don't know, not adjusting for inflation, for example, mm. right? It's like how many times have we seen, you know, stories in, new me in news media saying, you know, the latest uh, Marvel movie, the latest superhero movie is the highest grossing movie of all time, right? Mm -hmm. And then you take a look at the data and you realize that the data is not adjusted by inf for inflation. Yeah. So that, is, that statement is not true, obviously, because you're, you're basically using absolute values when you should be using adjusted values in order to make that comparison. Mm -hmm. And that happens all the time. And sometimes we don't pay enough attention and therefore we, we are misled led by those charts, right? Um, and, and I have plenty of examples of this in the book. The, mm. the one that is most popular with people in conferences is that I once saw a map displaying number of heavy metal bands all over oh, Europe. Yes, that one. Yeah, I saw that in the talk. So that's a good chart, by the way. It's not a bad chart. But it's an example of how to double check the source because I actually double checked the source in that particular case because when I saw the map, you know, number of heavy metal bands per million people per country, I asked myself, well, what is the source of this chart, is this chart calling heavy metal? Are all the bands that they are counting really heavy metal or do they belong to other musical genre, etc.? So before tweeting the map and popularizing the map in, in social media, I actually went to the source and made sure that they are actually counting, you know, that they, they had a more or less strict definition of what heavy metal mm -hmm. is. 
Obviously, it's very hard to define, but, you know, you can set some boundaries in there and basically assess whether they are counting heavy metal bands or they are also including, I don't know, pop rock bands or, you know, hard rock bands that are not really, really heavy metal. So I took I took a look at this source. So I use these kind of fun examples in talks and in the books to explain people how important it is to spend at least one minute or a couple of minutes double checking that, verifying that before you put that chart that you have seen in social media in your own feed, for example, because the chart may be wrong. And if it, the chart is wrong, then what you're doing is spreading misinformation, right? And we should, we all have a responsibility as citizens not to spread misinformation or at least try not to spread misinformation. We all make mistakes, right? So we all may spread misinformation. But if we only spend one, spend one minute or two thinking about what we are seeing, it will be less likely that we, we that we will uh, mis, mis, spread misinformation among our peers or our family or our friends in social media. Yeah, and, and that's a common problem these days in like in the world we live in, where people just catch on to something they hear and they start spreading it. And uh, it's very evident, for instance, in uh, the political space where some you know some all something happens and people think it's really bad. They start spreading it and they don't know the full story. They don't know what actually happened. And then when the full yeah. story emerges, it's completely different. And now there's all this defamation that's already happened. People yeah. are calling each other. And for it happens, look, yeah, and look, it happens to all of us. And this yeah. is something that I make very clear in the in talks and in the book. It happens to all of us. It has happened to me. It will keep happening to me mm -hmm. in the future. However, it is less likely that it, likely that it will happen to me today than it was, say, five years ago or 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. It was more likely before, just because now I'm a little bit more conscious about how I consume media, how prone I am to be misled by numbers or by stories or by charts. So I try to be a little bit more careful. And if we all try to be a little bit more careful, we will not be able to avoid 100% you know, of problems or, or, or cases in which we'll, we may be misled by a number or by a chart. But we, if we only avoid, say, half of them, that means half less misinformation around there, right? Yeah, and so with the, with the hard rock bands, I, I, as far as I remember from your talk, they had Bon Jovi in, the, in that... Uh... No, they didn't. No, they didn't. That's the key thing. That's what I explain in the talk and also in the book, that the reason why I double check the source of that chart is that if you if you look into the literature about the history of heavy metal, or even if you go to the Wikipedia page about heavy metal, you will see that there are some bands that are mentioned in there that it's a little bit dubious yeah. that they are heavy metal. So, for example, I think that the Wikipedia page mentions um, Poison, which is a glam rock band from the 80s and 90s, I doubt that that band can be really called heavy metal. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you call, I mean, heavy metal, what is, heavy metal is Metallica, or is, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Slayer, or Judas Priest, and all these bands, or Iron Maiden, right? Poison is a fine rock, fine rock band, but it's certainly not heavy metal, I would say. So they don't mention Bon Jovi. They're not, no, none of these bands that I sometimes I have sometimes seen being categorized as heavy metal, they don't appear in the source. I mean, the source only counts, you know, all the subgenres of, of heavy metal. Yeah, and I guess that's your uh, journalistic uh, investigative mind. You know, like it's interesting to see you coming from a journalism background because then you can apply this um, curiosity, this investigative approach to digging in and like being double checking all the facts. Um, how, how would you say that somebody can just develop that without being a journalist, without the background that you have? Through practice. It's, it's all through practice. As I said before, I mean, I am a little bit better at doing this today than I was, say, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way that I, that I wrote both How Chats Lie and my previous book, The Truthful Art, was to, um, you know, trying to remember how I was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. What didn't I know 10 or 15 years ago that I should have known? 
And I try to basically summarize all that into, you know, some key principles. So take a look at the source. Ask yourself whether the source is counting what they said that they are counting. Make sure that the that the data is displayed uh, in, on, in correct scales, that they are not distorting the scales of the chart. Ask yourself whether the chart that you are seeing is showing sufficient or insufficient information, right? Is it showing the, uh, you know, the right amount of detail in order for you to figure out what's going on? On, right. Um, try not to project your own beliefs onto the chart that you are seeing, because a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else. So be really, really careful because we are prone, all prone to doing that. Right. So try to curb your in, your own impulses a little bit to see your own views confirmed by the data that you are that you are seeing. Take a look at whether the patterns that you are the, that the chart is displaying are really there or not, right? You ask yourself, be a little bit more attentive. Only by doing that, as I said before, you will not be able to avoid all cases in which you may be misled by a chart, but you will avoid many. And by doing that, you will become a better chart reader. Mm -hmm. Or or creator, right? Like that's or a creator, right? Yeah, they, they, well. yeah, right? yeah. It's very important as well because mm -hmm. many of these problems, um, or many of the uh, many of the mistakes that we make when when reading charts, uh, they are very common even among practitioners like myself, like journalists or graphic designers, etc. That sometimes we are a little bit careless with the data that we that we handle. I and I speak based on my own experience. I mean I take a look back 10, 15 years ago and I see some charts that if it were today I would have never have designed, <laughs> such as, you know, pie charts in 3D and with shadows and shades and highlights and things like that that totally distorted the data. Or scatter plots like one that I mentioned before, which I described, such as, you know, the more cigarettes we consume, the longer we live. Mm -hmm. But no, that's the wrong description for that chart. That's not how to describe that chart because mm -hmm. that's not how, what the chart is showing mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Gotcha. And uh, I'd probably here jump to your like fifth principle of uh, graphical literacy because it fits in really well. Uh, when you build visualizations, you recommend to build narratives and test your visualization. And specifically, I really liked what you said about beginning with the text. Like, have rather than just starting to throw a visualization together, think of once you know what you want to display, think of a long, long like a long sentence that describe that will describe this visualization, and then break it down into pieces and visualize that. Could you tell us a bit more about this approach, please? Sure, sure, sure. But before I do that, I need to I need to also emphasize that visualization can be used for multiple pur with multiple purposes mm. in mind. So, when you take a look, for example, at the the classical cycle of data science diagram, right, that you can read in about in books such as Hadley Wickham's R for Data Science and many others, visualization comes in in two at two in two different steps in that cycle because visualization can be used to either explore data mm. and discover things from the data and we call that exploratory data analysis obviously mm -hmm. right and it can also be used to communicate your findings right what i specialize in is on the second use of visualization i'm not an expert in exploratory data analysis right there are many people who work in this field people who work in scientific visualization and in data science and specializing visualization visualization for exploration what i specialize in is in helping scientists and other kinds of experts in communicate their results so when you already know what you want to say once you have come out with the conclusions of your study and you want to communicate those conclusions, how you do it. And, and then when I teach these kinds of principles to specialists, I describe that technique that you have just mentioned, that this is a little trick that I learned throughout the years to never, never begin with the visualization itself, but always begin with a very long description of what you want to say, right? Sort of an elevator speech or what you want to describe. And this is not a technique that I have invented. I need to credit the sources for this technique because I shamelessly uh, <laughs> stole it from some friends of mine. So I heard about this technique from uh, Juan Velasco, who used to be the graphics director at National Geographic magazine. He's a friend of mine. And also Javier Saracina, who is the graphics director at Vox.com, both longtime visualization designers, very, very talented, very and nice both, people. Both from Spain, right? 
both from Spain. Yeah, there's some sort of Spanish mafia in the world of visualization in journalism. They are both from Spain, yes. Um, anyway, so they both described this technique uh, one day in a conference that I attended, and a couple, a couple of conferences that I attended, and it all begins by writing a very long sentence of what you want to say. What is the story? What is the narrative that you're trying to convey, right? Begin always with that, right? Begin with a very long sentence. Oh, my study focused on this, on that. I discovered this, on that. The exceptions are this, on that. The limitations are this, on that. And you write a very long sentence about that. And my conclusions are such and such, and possible exp possible alternative explanations may be such and such. So you begin with a very long sentence. And then what you do is to split up that sentence into its natural components. You try to find the natural breaks in that sentence. And then you split it up into four, five, six different components. Each one of those components may become the headline of a different section in your visualization or in your scientific poster or in your whatever it is that you're writing, your article, right? Those will be sort of the main themes, the main topic in your in your design. And they may become the titles of the sections of your design. And then what you do is to design the visualizations that support the assertions that you're making in those pieces of the sentence, right? So you put your visualizations underneath each one of the pieces of the sentence. And by doing that, you're basically, first of all, providing the elevator speech, the elevator speech itself. So if people don't want to really dig very deeply into your visualizations, they can still read the long sentence because other, the long sentence is, after all, the headlines of your section. So they can get away, uh, they, 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 they can just read that, right? So, and, and get the gist of your story. But then if they want to really double check whether what you are saying is right or not, they can take a look at your visualizations, as your charts, your graphs, your maps, whatever visualizations that you're designing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, that's a very powerful uh, approach. And uh, on top of that, I would like to probably talk a little bit about building narratives into visualization. So with like this day and age, one thing is just to create one image, which is, which can be very useful, insightful, but sometimes, like, and more often, we see these infographics that combine multiple images and a whole story behind them. And in uh, one of your talks, I really enjoyed uh, that whole story you built around the population of Brazil, as like you were doing some research or visualization on how the population of Brazil has changed from 2000 to 2010. But mm -hmm. then once you added additional charts about the fertility rate, you were able to tell a much clearer story. So if you don't mind, could you tell us a bit about that and uh, like how, how that played out and the whole thing yes. behind that? Uh -huh. Yeah. So yeah, I would need, I would need to, it's, it's actually quite weird to do um, a podcast about visualization because <laughs> yes. you need to verbally describe the chart. But this is an example that appears in, in my first book, uh, The Functional Art. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a story that I published when I was working for a, a media organization in Brazil. I lived in Brazil for a few years and, and we published this very large poster about population pattern change changes in, in Brazil. And it's a story made of several graphics. And the first thing that you see is basically a map and a bunch of bar graphs that shows you the population increase between 2000 and 2010, right? So basically the population of Brazil increased everywhere, right? At the national level, at the regional level, at the local level, with some exceptions, there are several regions that lost, pop lost population rather than gaining population. But in general, the population of Brazil grew between the two years. Well, that, that's interesting per se, right? But we decided to start uh, in collaboration with 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 demographers, I, I, I rarely do this kind of project alone because I'm not an expert on anything, right? So in collaboration with demographers and political scientists, we started digging a little bit deeper into the data and provided by the Brazilian Census Bureau. And one one critical piece of data that appears in that appearing in the news releases that we were getting and the data that we we're getting is that Brazil's fertility rate, which is the number of children per woman in a country, was strangely or surprisingly different to what was expected, right? When you think about fertility rates, um, when you think about rich nations, for example, rich nations tend to have low fertility rates. Like if you think about Germany or Spain or whatever, Western nations, you know, relatively high income in general, 
um, they tend to have fertility rates that are around 1.5 children per woman, 1.8 children per woman, and so on and so forth. They are relatively low. If you go to very poor nations, right, for example, Afghanistan or Yemen, fertility rates are very high, five children per woman, six children per woman. Some African nations also have very high fertility rates. I think that Nigeria is around four right now. That's sort of the average, right? Um and then if you go to the middle of the spectrum, middle of the income spectrum countries, such as Brazil, for example, right, fertility rates are usually between 2.5 or 3 point something children per woman. That's sort of the benchmark of, of these kinds of nations, right? But when you take a look at the data, that that is not true. I mean, the fertility rate of Brazil, if you ask Brazilians themselves, right, I, I, I know this because I did it. If you ask Brazilian journalists, what do you think that is the current fertility rate of Brazil, you will get numbers such as 2.5 or three children per woman, just because we have this idea of Brazil in mind as a nation that is still in development, right? Or, or a nation that is still very poor. And certainly there's a high, you know, high degree of poverty in Brazil, but that is not true of the entirety of the country. Brazil is a continent, right? And when you take a look at the data, you will discover that the that fertility rates in Brazil have dropped very dramatically in the past 50 years. And the current fertility rate in Brazil is around 1.8 children per woman. So that was the second piece of content that we put in that poster that we designed, because obviously if you have such a low fertility rate, 1.8, that's below the replacement rate. The replacement rate is the minimum number of children per woman, a fertility rate that a country needs to have in order to keep the population stable. If your fertility rate drops below 2.1, which is this magical number, right, your population will become older and it will start shrinking in the future just because you don't have enough children. If your fertility rate drops below that number, your uh, your population will become older and in the future it will start shrinking. And if you ask Brazilian demographers about future population patterns in Brazil, they will tell you that, that Brazil's population is predicted to become older and to start shrinking around 2030 or something like that. And that's a problem. Why? Because, well, Brazil has, you know, um, a public health care system. It has uh, a retirement, obviously, public uh, social security like the United States. So these population patterns will put a lot of pressure in Brazil's public finances. So how can you face that? Well, there are several things that political scientists have recommended to face this future situation. So if you think about it, what I have done over here is basically to use the technique that I explained before. My very long sentence would be, Brazil's population has grown bigger, but fertility rate is way below expected. As a consequence of these, uh, Brazil's population will become older and it will start shrinking in the future. This will be a problem. Here's how to face this problem. That's a very long sentence. You split it up into its components and then you compare each one of these headlines, these little titles, with the graphics that show the evidence for the assertion that you're making. And what we did was to use uh, maps and bar graphs to show population change, a line chart to show the drop of fertility rates in Brazil in comparison to other countries all over the world. We use a population pyramid to compare Brazil's population today versus Brazil's population based on age groups in 2050, a line chart to show Brazil's population growing, but then it started shrinking in 2030, and so on and so forth. So basically, it's a good example, I believe, to, to illustrate how this narrative principle works. It doesn't work always. But when it does, when you can structure your, your information this way, it can be really, really powerful. And, and it also takes care of the, the audience, because if you just showed a chart where you're showing how the population of Brazil grows from 2000 to 2010, people might, even though the chart is showing the correct insights, people might misinterpret it and... Uh, extrapolate that the population is going to keep growing and by 2020 mm -hmm. is going to or they you know, or they may or they may miss important features of the data right that's mm -hmm. that's why i emphasized before the importance of using text in data visualization and again we call these 
the annotation layer in data visualization. So let's say that you're doing a line chart showing progress in sales in your company and there is a sudden spike in a particular point in time, you better put an, an annotation in there because otherwise people will wonder why is there this spike over here? What's going on? Because you need to try to explain it. So put an annotation in there, right? That that annotation layer is really, really relevant mm -hmm. in data visualization. Pairing, again, pairing the visuals with the copy, with the text that you can write to emphasize important points in the data, to uh, supplement the data a little bit, to reinforce the main messages that you're trying to convey, or to uh, avoid misinterpretations, right? Also, to avoid misinterpretations of the data that you're presenting. Mm. In that sense, I really like the grammar of graphics, how they describe the multiple layers of visualization, like multiple, <laughs> you know, like starting from the axes all the way to <laughs> different colors and, and including annotations. Like once you understand uh, basically, as they call it in the book, the grammar of graphics. It really layer, helps layers. Layer grammar of graphics. Yeah, this is a this is another one of those concepts that I try to explain to the general public in the new book in How Chats Lie. I talk about the grammar of graphics. Obviously, I do it in a much less mm -hmm. technical way that Leland Wilkinson did in his famous book, The Grammar of Graphics, or Hadley Wickham does when talking about ggplot2 uh, but i still describe it i still teach this principle in the new book mm -hmm. definitely that's that's very very interesting and um unfortunately we won't have time to go into the rest of the principles of graphical literacy so for our listeners uh if you'd like to learn more about them highly recommend picking up um alberto's book which is available on pre-order right alberto yeah, it's already it's already available everywhere for for pre-order. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, independent bookstores. It's basically everywhere. So um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it comes out in October the fifteenth. But yeah, you can order it now. Guys, uh, girls, go get that book. It's going to it's going to be epic. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy. Um, and in in the remaining remaining like five or so minutes, I wanted to just quickly touch on something. I'd love to get your opinion on, and that is ethics in visualization. So we, mm -hmm. already, we already spoke a little bit about being conscious about what you reshare, how you um, read charts and you know, double check the data behind that. And I think with uh, how we're moving more into a technological world with more and more screens around us, with soon wearable devices and things like that, ethics is going to be super important. What, what is your stance on ethics and visualization? What, what kind of recommendations can you give to practitioners listening to this? Oh, wow, <laughs> that would take another entire book to talk about. <laughs> I, I, I may write about that in the future. I have that on the pipeline to write a, write a book about how to handle data and uh, particularly when you're going to visualize it. Um, I don't have very form thoughts at the moment because, again, I, I may use this new book to think clearly about these sorts of principles. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot. There's lots of people writing about these these things already, not from the point of view of visualization, but more from the point of view of data science in general. So I'm a bookworm, so I would like to recommend books. I would I would recommend, for example. Um, a Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction. I think that is a good introduction to thinking about the implications of the data that we handle every day, how to handle it carefully, clearly, and ethically. I think that is a good, a good introduction to that. Um, if you like something a little bit more controversial and aggressive, which I really, really enjoy, and that makes you think, even if you disagree with the book sometimes, because it's so aggressive, I would, I would really, really, really recommend a Mike Montero's new book. His new book, I believe, is called Ruined by Design. Mm. Um, so it has the word design in the title, but it's a book about data science. It's about a book about technologists, how technologies gather data, how the data is handled or mishandled, how careful we need to be with the tools that we create and think about the possible consequences of the tools that we create and that we put out for the public to use and so on and so forth. So Mike is a very passionate uh, very passionate speaker. He's also a very passionate writer. Again, you may not uh, uh, agree with everything that he says in the book, but it's one of those books that even if you disagree with it, sometimes it makes you think deeply and it makes you stop and think, is this guy right? Am I doing things correctly? And, and, and ethics begins with that, with doubt, 
with doubting about your own decisions and, and making, you know, have a dialogue with the book itself. So the book, the book makes you think clearly that those are two of my favorite books to, to start thinking about a, a, how to use data um, ethically and visualizations and, uh, as an extension of that. But there are many others. For example, Meredith Broussard, she has a book titled Artificial Unintelligence, yeah. which I really enjoyed. That This is by MIT Press, if I'm not wrong. And Virginia Eubanks, she has another book titled Automating Inequality which is about how algorithms and uh, may, may, may promote or may perpetuate uh, societal inequalities. So that's another book that made me think. Again, none of them covers visualization, uh, graphics in general, but uh, you, you cannot understand visualization separately from the data that a visualization is representing. So any book or any thoughts about the ethics and data visualization necessarily needs to begin with thinking about the data themselves. Wow, totally love it. You're definitely a, a bookworm. That's so many interesting books that I've, I've just been writing down. Um, yeah, no, I'm very curious about this one, Ruined by Design by Mike Montanero. I think you should really read it. I yeah. mean, it, 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 it will make you feel angry sometimes, I think, but <laughs> for, a, for a very good reason. I think yeah. that he makes a very, he makes a very good case. I think. That's wonderful. Well, on that note, Alberto, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all your insights. It's, it's been a huge pleasure. Before I let you go, what are some of the best ways to get in touch for your work? Of course, in addition or apart from purchasing your book, which I highly recommend to everybody, if you love this podcast, go and uh, get Alberto's new book, uh, How Charts Lie. Um, in addition to that, what are some other ways that people can follow you and uh, get you know, access to all these great things that you're creating? Sure. Um, the best way is uh, I use Twitter quite a lot. So my handle is very easy to remember. It's my first name and last name. So it's Alberto Cairo, at Alberto Cairo. So you can find me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm also on Facebook and on LinkedIn. I'm both in LinkedIn and Facebook, but I use Twitter most of the time mm -hmm. as a way to promote things that other people do, graphics that other people design, articles that I read, papers that I have discovered, books that I'm reading, whatever. I use it as a platform to share, basically. Um, things that I see and that I enjoy. I also have a weblog. Uh, the weblog is the title of my first book, The Functional Art. So it's thefunctionalart.com. Uh, that's my weblog. And that's the platform that I use to write a little bit more extensively about things that I see also. So those are the best ways, I would say. Gotcha. And my, um, e my, my email address is very easy to find. So in any of these platforms. Fantastic. And also, everybody listening, Alberto, you have a huge 45 and a half thousand followers on Twitter. So yeah, it's a, it's a great community to be part of, I guess, to yeah, follow and all it's these a, insights. It's a fun community as well. There is one virtue, virtue that the visualization, com visualization community has, which is that it's very welcoming to newcomers. So if you want to get started in data visualization, you just need to basically get started, start designing your graphics, putting it up there, out there, asking people for advice, asking people for feedback. And most people, 99.9% you know, .9 of the people who I know in the visualization community are very constructive, welcoming, friendly, and it's a great community to, to work in. For sure. And I find that like to be true across all of data science is surprisingly such a, and inspiringly so, such a wonderful community of Helpful yeah, people. absolutely. The the R community is very similar to the visualization yeah. community as far as I have seen. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, once again, Alberto, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all these amazing insights. Super, super exciting chat and good luck for the book launch and for all the touring that you're going to do in, in a couple of months from now. Thank you so much for having me again. It was a pleasure. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being part of today's episode of the Super Data Science Podcast. That was Alberto Cairo. What an epic person. What an epic expert in the space of data visualization. I got a ton from this podcast, got so many takeaways, and I hope you did too. And just from this conversation, you can tell the depth of thinking that goes into Alberto's visualizations. So you can all find all of the infographics that we talked about uh, in the, the show notes for this episode at www.superdatascience.com slash 271. Uh, that's superdatascience.com slash 271. And 
just have a look through them. Look at, uh, for instance, the cigarettes versus life expectancy or the Brazil visualization that we were talking about or the um, Nobel Prize and chocolates visualization. Like, just look at all of these different visualizations that you will find there and notice the depth that they go into, the depth of thinking that went into creating them and you will recognize a lot of the things that Alberto was actually talking about on this podcast, you know, from understanding if your data is measuring uh, the right thing that you want it to be measuring and that you think it's measuring, to building narratives and uh, creating a narrative structure in your uh, visualization and conveying those insights in a certain way so that people can better understand them. And also, if you see uh, Alberto's visualizations on the internet, you'll find that they're definitely very persuasive and very memorable. And of course, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure to pick up Alberto's new book, which is called How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information. It's coming out in October 2019, but you can already pick up a copy now. You can pre-order a copy on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, Amazon UK, wherever you're shopping for your books. Highly recommend putting one on pre-order so that you get it fresh once uh, they're live. And hey, the, what I really like about uh, this book, as Alberto describes it, is that it's for the general public. And that means like if you're not that adept at the data visualization, you're going to get a great head start. But if you're already a data scientist and you're already visualizing a lot of things and you're pretty experienced in this space, it will help you see visualizations from the eyes of your audience and understand what kind of issues they're going through, what kind of challenges they're facing. And I think it's a very valuable skill to empathize with the people that you're creating this for, for your audience. Um, so that can be very, very powerful. And of course, as usual, if you know anybody who can benefit from this podcast, somebody who's interested in visualization, somebody who's a fan of Alberta Cairo's, uh, or somebody who's kind of like dabbling on the verge of getting into visualization or not, send them this podcast, give them this gift of insights into what the world of data visualization is all about. And you might even help them change their lives, change their careers and progress forward. So share the love, share this link, superdayscience.com slash 271 with anybody who you think could benefit from it. And on that note, thank you so much for being here today. Make sure to follow Alberto on Twitter and any other social media. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.